We're dedicating that song today to the governor of Florida, who I believe is named Ralph DeSantis. Is that correct, Ralph DeSantis? Uh, and he, of course, obviously had kind of a setback. But we don't want him to fall apart. <laughs> um, and obviously we're dedicating it also to you if you're out there. You're a DeSantis supporter. We love you. You're beautiful. Now go home. Uh no, I'm just quoting Trump now. Okay, so it's ask or tell me anything. Uh, we don't have to talk about stuff like uh, about stuff like that. We could. I am able to. Um, but uh, you can call up about anything. Something as abstruse as chestnut trees you could call up about. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. Uh, and women callers will maybe granted a slight advantage because sometimes it's hard to get women to call Although women call this show, they just do, and I'm proud of that. All right, so just to give you kind of a sense of how this goes, what it's like, let's try our first caller, Michael from Middletown. Hi, Michael. You're on the air. Hi there, Colin. I think you're probably live from the Higby Conservation Forest in Middletown? Uh, I'm, I'm not, but that would be great. <laughs> okay. What's your topic? Um, what do you know about Connecticut's hybrid chestnut orchards? I know relatively little, though. I know there are efforts being made to conserve the the wild chestnut trees, either working from a nut of existing chestnut trees or, you know, something I've I've experimented with a little bit in my own backyard, germplasm. Uh, (laughs) But I would rather have you talk uh, about I know that there's an effort to conserve chestnut trees, and we do have a pretty plentiful supply of them. But I think part of the idea is to conserve some of the very specific strains that have existed here for hundreds of years. And I think before you say anything, it's important to say that chestnut trees play a great role in American life. Uh, You have to have a spreading chestnut tree in order to kneel down upon your knee, um, as the song says. Anyway, Michael, you know so much more about this than I do. So take it away. Yeah. um, So, I mean, you actually know quite a bit. But – that, all of that is in reference to the American chestnut, and yeah. the chestnut orchards that I'm more interested in are actually more uh, Asian genetics. So in Hamden, lots of people don't know about this in Connecticut, but so in Hamden, Connecticut, there is Lockwood Farm, which is part of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, where there's this massive germplasm genetic repository of every species of chestnut known, which was put together by um, many researchers, but most recently... Dr. Sandra Anagnostakis. And if folks are interested in learning more about this, every year the farm hosts uh, Plant Science Day on the, I believe it's the first Wednesday of August, where you can go and see these trees that are, you know, beautiful 100-year-old trees still producing chestnuts annually every year. Um, and then there's other, there's other nearly century-old forests or agroforests throughout the state as well. There's one at the Nathan Hale Homestead in Coventry, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And a few others spread about. I think that more people just need to know about these um, these places. Yeah, there's actually something called the American uh, Chestnut Foundation. There's a Connecticut chapter. It has a website. can get you to all of this stuff. But so make the case. I think it's important to do this. Make the real case that um, this is important, that the, you know, the chestnut tree and particularly various varieties. I, first of all, I always find it weird, chestnut orchard. I just I must have some weird prejudice towards the idea that just that orchards are have 
fruit in them as opposed to nuts. But um, but make the case that it's important, the thing that you're talking about, the germplasm, the preservation uh, of older or more diverse varieties. Okay, so the argument for agroforestry using chestnuts is essentially that they bear annually. They don't have impact on the soil the same way that uh, tilled annual agriculture does. So looking at you know the Connecticut or regional New England landscape, if we were to transition hundreds of acres of farmland to agroforestry using tree crops like chestnuts, uh, the inputs would be significantly less and there'd be much less harm on the environment. There would be significant in, like impacts and benefits from carbon drawdown, carbon sequestration into the soil. And chestnuts in general are just a delicious crop. I don't know. Have you ever had one? Have yes. you ever eaten a chestnut? I, I even have... We either have chestnuts in our yard or it's in the yard next door and all the stuff from the chestnut tree falls down in our driveway. I'm not really sure whose chestnuts those are. But, yes, I'm, I've had chestnuts and they're also they're like, you know, great with purees and stuff like that. You can get all kinds of interesting versions of the chestnut. But, yeah, I know I'm all in favor of chestnuts. And I think it's also, you know, just very important. You look what's happened here with some of the blights and borers and stuff that have gone through here and decimated various tree varieties. So you probably want to have a genetically diverse stock just so there's a chance that one kind doesn't get wiped out by the thing that wiped out the other kind. Yes, precisely. Um, and so there, in Western Mass, there's precedent for these sort of chestnut orchards. Like um, there's one farm called Big River Chestnuts mm-hmm. on, in Sunderland on the Connecticut River uh, where they use seedling trees. And with climate change and, you know, changing, shifting climate zones, uh, planting seedling orchards is really kind of like a hedging bets against future pests and diseases. Mm-hmm. And so th- this kind of shift in regenerative agriculture is just really important for our region. One thing we should point out, I believe I'm correct about this, but if I'm not, you'll tell me, um, the kind of chestnuts that you're likely to have pelting down in your driveway are not the kind that you can eat. Um, so you got to be careful because uh, some of the chestnuts are not really consumable or at least digestible by human beings, right? Well, so those would be horse chestnuts. I'm yeah. not exactly – so there's, there's something called horse chestnut, which is an entirely different species. Yeah. Um, the chestnuts that you can eat are castania, and the horse chestnuts are – look like a chestnut, but it's not the same tree species. If you have an American chestnut in your yard that's dropping things in your driveway and it's being pollinated, you, you can eat those. They'll just be smaller, and they might not be being fertilized. There would need to be another tree with pollen nearby. All right. This is, I'm not saying we've exhausted the subject, but it might be you know about as much spontaneous conversation about chestnuts as I can handle. But, Michael, thank you so much for your call. We've got open lines here right now. Uh, our number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. I will say, while I'm waiting for people to call in, somebody called in but didn't want to talk. I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> she just wanted – she was trying to reach Grubhub or something, just trying to get her lunch delivered. But, um, yeah, the number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. I just want to say that Lily Tyson, the senior producer, who is in fact screening calls today, she and I are working on a show that I'm very intrigued by, even though, well, I'm just intrigued by it in a very preliminary way. I mean, I'm always intrigued by the shows our producers are working on. But she's working on a show about 2024. But the f- first part of the show, I think it's the A segment of the show, first segment, uh, is going to be about how tw- <laughs> I can't even talk about it about how 2024 w- was sort of anticipated and depicted fictionally. So, for example, 
uh, Octavia Butler's novel Parable of the Sower takes place. It was written in the early 90s, but it takes place in 2024. So her guess about what 2024 is is one thing. Uh, there are other examples. A Boy and His Dog uh, is uh, – that's what it's called, right? Uh, that one's uh, – yes, and Lily does not like that movie. But it takes place in 2024, another dystopian futuristic movie. Um, but <laughs> but Lily Tyson's behest yesterday, I watched – and this is how I spend my days. Now that the Packers are out of the playoffs, I have actually a little bit more free time than I used to. Uh, so this is how I spent yesterday, uh, part of yesterday. I watched <laughs> season three, episodes 11 and 12 of Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. This is the Avery Brooks, Benjamin Sisko uh, iteration. And um, – <laughs> so what happens there is because of a transporter error, which I think we have here, we have the same problem here, and Joe Koss is working on it. Our transporter occasionally will send you not just to a different place, but to a different time. We don't we don't know why. We got a we paid sort of retail for it at Costco, but um, but anyway, their transporter mistakenly sends three members of the crew back to, <laughs> to San Francisco in 2024. So, I mean, the thing takes place in, I don't know what, some Trekkie will know. It's like, you know, 200 years ahead of that, something like that. Uh, so they <clears throat> they uh, they go back to 2024, and they're in San Francisco. And of all things, San Francisco has a major problem with uh, homeless and mentally ill people, and they found this kind of little sector of the city. I believe it used to be called the Tenderloin. <laughs> I forget what they call it now. But it's where they just put everybody there and put a wall around them, which is like so close. I mean, it's like the only thing that they haven't actually done. I mean, at one point when Gavin Newsom was mayor of San Francisco, he had the idea of just offering homeless people, people, unhoused people, whatever we want to call them, uh, just money to go back where they came from. It's like, you're from Nebraska? Okay, what if we give you bus fare and a little bit of walking around money once you get there? Would you like to go back to Nebraska? I mean, hardly anybody does. But that, I mean, they've tried things at that level. Uh, but anyway, just the idea that the the makers of Star Trek who, so Star Trek Deep Space Nine is still like mid-90s, mid to late 90s. So we'll say like 96. They are looking forward 28 years to 2024, they're not far off, you know, not far off. There are some things they got wrong. The fashions aren't like that. Um, all right, so we've got some other calls coming in here, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. Ken, hang in there because I think I might need a little bit of no time. Well, actually, Monica's not ready to go, so we'll go to Ken, and then we'll go to Monica. So here's Ken from Wyndham. Hi, Ken. Hi, Colin. Long-time listener. Uh, I just... I just want to give you a chance to sound off on the Packers' loss <laughs> over the weekend. Yes, this is probably of limited interest to Connecticut public radio listeners, but um, I will. But I think, Ken, I think I can expand upon it uh, into a kind of a philosophical level that that will cross out of Packers and football and everything like that. And and here's here's what I think about this. So just to contextualize this a little bit for those of you who weren't paying attention, so the Packers at the prior to the commencement of this season got rid of their pathologically narcissistic and sociopathic, but incredibly talented uh, quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, much to my delight. I didn't really care what happened, but I couldn't stand him on the premises another second. He has, of course, since then distinguished himself 
even more um, by, among other things, you know, suggesting that Jimmy Kibble's name would be in the Jeffrey Epstein files and things like that. Anyways, just a dreadful person. Um, and so they were beginning a new life with a young quarterback named uh, Jordan Love. They had the youngest team in the NFL, one of the youngest teams ever to make the playoffs in the NFL, in the history. I think it's the youngest team since the NFL-AFL merger or something like that to make the playoffs. And they're sort of fun and wonderful and they, you know, I mean, they're not ready exactly, but they, it's a very bouncy, fun, wonderful group of people and young young guys who really support each other. And so nobody thought, I mean, everybody thought they'd go, you know, eight and nine or something like that and that would be the end of the season. If they were lucky, if they didn't go like seven and 10 or six and 11. Um, and instead they just squeezed into the play, eked into the playoffs and then they Shocked everybody by beating Dallas in the first round of the playoffs on Martin Luther King uh, Day weekend. Uh, and then they ran into the number one seed on Saturday night, San Francisco 49ers. And it was a very close game, unexpectedly close game, but they lost. And at this point, I think sometimes, and this is the philosophical part, sometimes you, in life you have to acknowledge that you are, you have arrived at a moment where you're playing with house money, that you've gotten to a point where if you lose things, I mean, house money in the sense that if you lose it, well, you never really had it. Um, you only had it there, theoretically. Um, and so that's kind of how I was thinking, sitting in my armchair uh, with, you know, my Packers paraphernalia around me. I was sort of thinking, you know, it'd be cool if we could win this game. It was really great, you know, but I, I wasn't like up on the roof afterwards. I was like, okay. I mean, I think I speak for a lot of Packers fans since I look at Packers Twitter obsessively. Um, everybody sort of thought, well, it kind of sucks that way. We could have actually beaten the number one team. But, you know, the fact that we got this far, that's really nice. And these guys are going to be a year older next year. And unlike me being a year older where I just get worse and worse, they're going to get better and better. So, Ken, that's, you know, go ahead. I think you might have had company on a roof with some Bills fans this morning. Um, <laughs> I Poor Bill. I mean, I feel like I don't know. I don't even know what to say for Bills fans. It's hard. It's you know. I mean, being a sports fan, I might have said this on the year before, but it's like Kino, right? Kino is arithmetically and carefully calibrated so that you will win just enough so that you don't mind how much you're losing, um, or at least it's not that you don't mind it, but you win just enough so that you will continue to play and lose. Um, and, and I'm sure that they, this is the result of incredible quantitative analysis, knowing exactly um, how many rewards they have to sort of, you know, eke out uh, or, or dribble out to you so that you don't go away. And being a sports fan, a fan of any team is kind of like that. I mean, how much misery can you endure in return I, I for little rewards? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Jets fan. So, oh my God! Well, I'm you know, so sorry. I am miserable so. Miserable is my middle name. Yeah, so, and you got our sociopathic, yeah. narcissistic, horrible yes, quarterback yes. who blew out his Achilles tendon <laughs> about 30 seconds into the season. I am so sorry on so many. I feel because you know I I grew up in New England uh, with a lot of Calvinist guilt. I feel bad. I feel responsible. I feel morally responsible for your misery, Ken. Um, <laughs> If that helps at all. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm not just sort of, you know, skipping away, tra-la-la, we got rid of the biggest jerk who ever played football, well, because I'm sorry. You, you kind of were. <laughs> well, I was momentarily until I realized who I was talking to. I am so sorry. You should, you should do, something to, do something to cheer yourself up. Watch Hamlet, you know. 
that that's like a happier <laughs> you know point of view than being a Jets fan. I'm very very sorry. All right, we have to move on here. It's not a football show. I wouldn't mind if it were, but all right, we're gonna get Monica, Eric, and Catherine, and we're gonna go to Monica first. Monica is in Southbury. Hi, Monica. Hello, Colin. This is my first call to you, and although I'm upset about the Bills loss. Um, <laughs> Where am I right upset. now? What's happening? Uh, anyway, go ahead. I'm more upset by the way the primary works, and I would like someone of more historical knowledge, knowledge of government, knowledge smarter than I am to explain why two states, really, Iowa and New Hampshire, get to choose who we get to vote for, for president. And I feel that the primaries should be held in every state on the same day so that everybody has a voice in who's going to be on the ballot. And I can just get off and listen to you or any other intelligent person that can make me feel better. Well, I don't know if anybody can make you feel better, but while you're still on, don't hang up yet. Um, let me first of all tell you about, I wish I could claim uh, credit for this, but this is, um, what would we call this? I, I would say this is known in political science as the Dankosky matrix. Uh, and so uh, my former colleague, John Dankosky, I believe he gets credit for this. Um, so the, Don, the, Don, the Dankosky matrix posits the following solution. Divide the country up into three tranches uh, of, of states. You know, and probably kind of mix them a little bit randomly, you know, so it's not like all those other states or all the states that begin with A or whatever. Just figure out some randomized mix. And so you, now you've got three tranches that are kind of balanced out for population and stuff like that. Um, and then what they do, well, then every cycle, they take a turn going first. So so you, group one, you know, would, would be the primary. They would be... You know, so it's, it's 50 divided by three. <laughs> I can't do it. Uh, but it's yeah. something like that. So, OK, 17 states would vote first in, in you know, I, I don't know, in 2028. And then in 2032, the next group would vote first. And the group that had voted first, group one, would move to the bottom. And so you'd so every no state would be privileged. I think this would make you happy. I mean, it wouldn't be all of us voting at once, but it would be. And, and it could be the problem with the Dankosky matrix might be that after day one, where 17 or 16 states vote, um, that it, it is over. <laughs> um, but but that strikes me as a fairer way to do this. And I mean, the Democrats have kind of acknowledged this and trying they tried to bump New Hampshire and, you know, Biden's not really running there and all that kind of stuff. Get to South Carolina faster. Um I would say this, though, and this might make you feel a little bit better, Monica. I don't know. But (laughs) in some ways, you could argue that the process worked as well as it could possibly work, given what overall overall it's kind of a fraudulent and and, and improper process. But as fraudulence goes, what has happened here is that this process has culled a whole bunch of people. Uh, Tim Scott, Ramaswamy, uh, DeSantis, Doug Burgum. I just thought Burgum was a lock. I don't know how you know that slipped away from him. But um, you know, and, and so now you really have heading into Super Tuesday, Haley versus Trump, which Trump tends to forget this because he has such a disorganized mind. That's his worst nightmare. He didn't want to have to go one on one with everybody because Trump's biggest problem is that you know when you just say. 
Trump versus generic Republican, it gets closer to 50-50 in some of the polls. You know, he's like maybe 51-49 or something. Um, mm-hmm. And so th- the best thing for Trump was to have a lot of opponents. And instead, what's happened here is that a lot of those people have been bumped out. Pence has gone too. Uh, and, and what you've got left probably is him and Nikki Haley heading into Super Tuesday. If she can run a better campaign than she's been running so far, and I don't know how she could run a worse campaign than she's been running so far, except that it can't be that bad because she's still standing and nobody else is. But if she could run a really solid campaign and figure out what the hell her message is and how it might be directed right at Trump— you know, she's got a chance. I, I, I mean, it's not a very good chance, but she's got a better chance than anybody had if DeSantis had stayed in. So, you know, maybe it's not quite as horrible as you think. Okay, great. Well, Thanks. I am glad that she's there to at least, you know, bring up some things that, for people to think about. Right. I'm, thank, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely be thankful for that. I mean, you know, I actually think she'd be a fairly horrible president, but she might not be as bad as I think. Um, I mean, she might be sort of a Bush 41 kind of president. I mean, I think that's what you sort of hope for, that she would be, as you, as you may recall, uh, when Bush, I think it was during his nominating speech or his acceptance speech at the convention in 88, it was somewhere. Bush did this whole thing about a kinder, gentler nation. Once they wanted, <laughs> He wanted to bring about a kinder and gentler nation. Keep in mind, he had spent eight years as the vice president to Ronald Reagan. So that caused Nancy Reagan to publicly inquire not unreasonably, kinder and gentler than who? Uh, but in fact, you know, what what Bush was saying was, I, you know, I, I do have a different vision here, a vision that maybe encompasses more groups of people and stuff like that. I think that's the best you can hope for from Nikki, that you'll get, you'll get Bush 41. Um, all right. So um, what I think I should do is take a break here. Uh, and then we have people who want to talk about, we got Eric and we got Catherine. They both have really good topics. Eric and Catherine go nowhere. We'll be back in just a few seconds. Boom. One day this boy will be fine. One day this boy will be fine. You better watch out now. That day might be today. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When I say I'm in love, you best believe I'm in love, L-U-V.
That's the Shangri-Las. Mary Weiss, their lead singer, died within the last couple of days at the age of 75. Yeah, I could have played leader of the pack, but everybody's going to play leader of the pack. And, you know, as usual, the Shangri-Las, I mean, as, as is customary with many groups that had good, solid careers. Although the Shangri-Las, I believe, only put out two albums of original material. But it's always good to play, you know, maybe the, the deeper cut. I live, the person with whom I share a life, she who must not be named. Um, she would be able to sing along to that song. I mean, whenever we're watching it, there was a PBS series called uh, Funny Woman about a British woman kind of in the 1960s trying to break into comedy, kind of trying to become the next Lucille Ball. And they had just a terrific soundtrack, but it was like a lot of it was kind of slightly deeper cuts, late 50s, early 60s. And all of those songs were sung along with in the room where we watched television and not by me because I didn't know them all. Uh, all right. So anyway, bye-bye Mary Weiss and, you know, gave us a lot of joy. She actually, Mary Weiss, it turns out she put out a solo album like in 2006 or something. <laughs> like after having done essentially nothing except, you know, be a Shangri-La long, long ago. All right. Time to get back to the phone calls. Let me – well, actually, you know what we'll do? Uh, we'll uh, talk to Eric first because he kind of builds a little bit on the Shangri-Las. And then we'll talk to Catherine who wants to talk about the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which I think is worth doing. So, Eric, you have the floor first. Hi. Hi, Colin. It's, it's fortuitous that <laughs> that I'm on the phone uh, immediately after you were actually talking about songs <laughs> mm-hmm. because um, that's the topic that I'm calling about. And, and I'm calling in reference to uh, a comment you made. Uh, I think it was in last Thursday's podcast that uh, the muscles that we use when crying are the same as those that we use when singing. And and that, uh, it really caught my interest, my attention and interest, uh, because I, I'm actually, I actually, recently uh, received uh, one of the great courses lecture series titled How to Sing. And, and of course, singing uh, is a body awareness activity uh, that involves uh, controlled breathing uh, and body alignment, uh, much like yoga is, and so it's, which makes it a mindfulness activity. And uh, I want to share my uh, experience uh, and discovery of a mindfulness strategy uh, for managing distressing thoughts. Uh, Because in 2018, uh, I tragically lost my mother. which was a very traumatic event for me. And uh, I had these very distressing thoughts, which, of course, would happen to anyone, Mm -hmm. but particularly uh, to me because I'm an OCD sufferer. Mm. (laughs) And and when a thought enters into my head, it it gets stuck there. That's what typically happens with OCD. Uh, And I, I discovered during this grieving, you know, the grieving process and trying, uh, but I, anyway, I discovered uh, a strategy for actually managing the thoughts and reducing their power. And that is to be consciously aware of the impact that the thought has on the body 
on various body parts and uh, the effect that the sensations uh, experienced in those body parts have on the thought. So, so it's kind of it kind of becomes like a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, the strategy that I discovered was uh, when I felt like breaking down and crying, I would put my hand on you know I'd recognize that my throat was tight. So I placed my hand on my throat and I would say I would say verbally my throat is tight. And then if my, then the same with the chest and the solar plexus. And I found that that really was an effective approach for, um, for reducing the power of those thoughts and, and the intensity. And it really helped me manage the, the crisis. It's very interesting. And first of all, I'm very sorry to hear that story. I, yeah. Losing your mother is just like really, really hard whenever it happens. Whatever the age, you're not ready for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I will just say this about that. Um, I happen to be, as usual, or <laughs> often the case, I'm seeing a therapist every week these days. And this is sort of something, she does kind of a version of this. It's kind of like, where do you feel this in your body? What's going on in your body right now? I mean, it isn't the only thing she does in therapy, but at a certain point, she'll say, you know, kind of stop, feel this, Where what's going on in the body? What can you do about that? I think that sort of needs to be balanced between that and uh, actually experiencing and having a release of emotions. But I also understand that with OCD and, and the way that it's expressed in you, that, that can be complicated. So I'm also going to recommend a book that you might enjoy or it might freak you out. So I don't know. Okay. But Go it's ahead. by Charlie Barber, who's a friend of ours and is on this show with some regularity. But I get to know Charlie because I reviewed his first book, which is called Songs from the, Back, the, Songs from the Black Chair, a memoir of mental interiors. Um, and it's... Um, it's about, particularly in Charlie's youth, he has some of the same uh, experiences that you're having right now uh-huh. with OCD and, and what, you know how he deals with it. You, you might find that, in, find that interesting. Barber, just like you go see, see to cut your hair. The last thing I would say about this is I don't remember everything that we said about that because the, we actually did that show about a year ago mm. and then we reran it. But I do remember that Dar Williams and I talked a little bit about this and about just the difficulty of singing and crying. Something, something that yeah. Bernadette Peters is able to do. It. She can cry really hard and sing at the same time. I don't know how that's possible. I even asked her how that was possible, and I don't think she was able to answer it satisfactorily to an outside person. So, um, okay, i, I got to move on here, but thank you so much for your call, Eric. That was great. We're going to move on to Catherine in New London. Oh, I didn't do the thing that I got it. There it is. There's Catherine. Hi, Catherine. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. I am sorry to bring you down, but uh, today is the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which in my mind is still the law of the land, because I was there in 73 when we marched and marched and marched. I'm very, very upset about this issue. And for me, it's the only issue on the ballot in November. You know, it's a, are you a reader of Heather Cox Richardson? Do you read her daily newsletter? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm one of her many millions. You know, she's right. making a fortune, by the way, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, she was on the, she was, she's been on the show with us 
a bunch of times. She was on earlier. Oh, she was on last year uh, when her book came out. But the the piece she did about it two days ago uh, about the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, I thought was terrific. Yeah, had, a, had a lot of history in it that I'd kind of forgotten, including the fact that in the 70s, this wasn't a super controversial issue among Republicans. Um, the majority of Republicans, Republicans ballot, Gallup polling in the early 70s said things like that this was an issue between a woman and her doctor, um, that this was, wasn't a hard thing. And that really one of the things that initially energized it was Nixon and Pat Buchanan did it to try to pick off. Catholic voters who ordinarily voted for Democrats or were independent or whatever, they suddenly thought, oh, if we can sort of make this our issue, we might be able to get uh, some of those votes. And the other point that she made that I'd completely forgotten about is that the judges, the Supreme Court justices were necessary to bring about, bring about the Dobbs decision were only confirmed because Mitch McConnell altered the, the filibuster rules. Uh, and lowered it to, you know, I mean, I, none of them, I think, got more than 55 votes. Kavanaugh, Amy uh, Barrett, uh, Comey, whatever her name is, Coney, and, and Gorsuch. Um, they, you know, none of them, I think, got more than 55 votes. So if there was a 60-vote yeah. thing, some producer here should be do a show about the filibuster. I don't know why that's never <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, Colin, the, yeah. point, the point being, Colin, yeah. those justices were put on there specifically for that purpose. Oh, yeah. They were groomed, as they say these days. Yeah. Now you have Trump taking credit, which is bullshit. Excuse me. I can't say that on <laughs> air. Well, you just did, actually, <laughs> technically. Um, the yeah. other... The, you know, he's flip-flop. Anyway, never yeah. mind. All right. Yes. Well, you know, so I would sort of take a little leaf from Eric's book right now, Catherine. I, I would figure out where in your body these emotions are happening. Not that there's anything wrong with having these emotions, but I would try to figure out where in, the, where in my body. Is it like up in my throat? Is it in my breathing apparatus? Is it in my abdomen? Where am I feeling these things? And just sort of sit with that for a while. And then you can still be mad. <laughs> but you don't want to be so mad that you're calling... Uh, public radio stations and using barnyard terms. Um, you know, I'm not that not that I don't use them all the time. Uh, but anyway, on we go, on we go. We're going to talk to Linda from Simsbury. Hi, Linda. Hi, Colin. I have um, a very lighthearted uh, question for okay. you. Uh, I have noticed since I have um, football watching sons-in-laws that my birthday coincides uh, with Super Bowl weekend. Mm-hmm. And and I'm wondering, is will it always be that way? Is it always uh, like the second weekend in February? And can it? Is there a chance it can be changed by like I don't know what adding teams or something? The Linda Law. Um, I I yeah. th- you know I I'm trying to remember. So um, th- one thing that did happen was that they added a week in between. The, the the conference champ- championship games and the Super Bowl. Uh, so that it used to be, I think, my, I, I'm doing this from memory and I might have screwed it up. And then somebody will call up and explain it correctly. By the way, the number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. So one of the things that might have screwed up your life a little bit is that. But also, another thing that's happened is that the NFL added an extra week of games. Uh, the NFL now plays 17 regular season games. Uh, uh, instead of 16, and there's a bye week. So it used to be 17 weeks of regular season games. Now it's 18 weeks of regular season games. So if, in fact, your um, birthday is overlapping this year with the Super Bowl, um, that's that might be a relatively recent thing. 
And, you know, as we learn from poems like Ozymandias, you know, these things don't – nothing happens. Nothing stays. Nothing, nothing stays. Nothing stays. <laughs> Look around and weep, you know, at, at the glory that was Roger Goodell. Uh, and now it is gone. So <laughs> – um, so, you know, I wouldn't, you know, and you, so you wish that were not the case so that you could Correct. enjoy your birthday in a different way. So your sons-in-law, let's get to the root of this, okay? The root yes. of this is okay. your sons-in-law are not paying any freaking attention to you on your birthday. They're sitting there well, stuffing their faces with guacamole and <laughs> glugging down Labatt beer and and just, because your sons-in-law are Canadian. I don't know whether you know that or not. And, and you know, they could just turn around and look at, what do they, they call you mom? They call you Linda? What do they call you? Linda. Linda. Well, turn around, look at Linda. for cake. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice of them. I bet you they don't bring any cake. Oh, oh, oh! They would. They would. They would. They're well, they're they're nice boys. Yeah. Your daughters didn't choose unwisely. It's oh, just no, that no, they're they just a not. little bit get into the you know. <laughs> anyway, I feel your pain. I would pay attention right. to you if you were my mother-in-law. Well, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Unless the Packers Packers were in the Super Bowl, you could very easily die on the driveway, and I wouldn't know. But but otherwise, I would spend a little bit of time talking to you and, you know, reflecting on your life and changes and things you remember. And, oh, you know what? I will tell you, I will do one last thing, then I have to go to break. Sure. Okay, it's not your birthday yet, but this will be sort of a warm-up for your birthday. So my mother-in-law... Um, who's now well into her 90s, um, what she does every year uh, when anybody has a birthday in, in the family, if she is present, she says, tell me what you learned. Tell me one thing you learned this year, um, which is very interesting, you it know. Is. So you don't, you don't have to spit that out right now unless it's obvious to you. But think about that as you head into the Super Bowl, you know, and then, you know, don't bet well, on the— I've pr- learned. Yeah, go ahead. But they added a, a game to the season, and that's how it ended up on my birthday. <laughs> that's not bad. That's bad. All right, yes. I mean, you can't control things. That's the thing we have, we have to learn. We have a limited amount of control over things that we don't like, and our other option is just wait for those things to pass. All right, so we are going to take a little break. <laughs> I can't tell you why I'm laughing right now, but we're going to take a break right now. Our number, if you want to call in and... Talk about Linda's birthday or anything else, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial, 
For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash pepin. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 at ctpublic.org slash Colin, which is also where you can sign up for our delightful free fortnightly newsletter, The Newsletter. You can listen to any episode on any podcast app. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks, Sabrina. And since you mentioned uh, the newsletter, let me just say that if you haven't signed up for the newsletter yet, for example, what you missed on Saturday was a guided tour of the uh, stuffed animals, plush toys, and other inanimate objects owned by both me and some of the producers of the show, including Lily Tyson's new friend, Existential Crisis Bob, which is sort of a... Well, he's a plush toy, right? That's what you call him, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, that I gave her for the holidays. Um, anyway, so you're missing that. So I just want to say that if you want to be signed up for it, I'm just offering to be your concierge. I'm offering to be your concierge, as the lady says in the producers. You just email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at ctpublic.org. I will sign you up personally. I will personally sign you up for the, the newsletter. You get it fortnightly. It does not cost you anything. And it's not that interesting either. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It, it, no, it's it's very interesting, but it won't get you overexcited. Um, all right, so um, I don't have any calls right now, and that's okay. But the number is eight 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 seven two zero WNPR eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. Time to thank Cat Pastor. She's our technical producer today. Lily Tyson is both the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show and the person screening calls today. Uh, thanks to her as well. So I want to bring up another show we're doing this week because it might even occasion a phone call or two. So McCusker, the Wonder Kid, who's one of our producers, is working on a show about the idea of niceness. And, of course, one of, if you can't begin to have a conversation uh, or, to, or a consideration of the idea of niceness without starting to talk about regional differences in niceness. Um, and the um, – I'm just looking at the latest call from Cheryl in Plantsville, which I will get to. So there's obviously this idea that people in the South – are nice or perhaps warm but not nice. I mean, for example, uh, for example, the person with whom I share a life, the person whose name cannot be spoken, uh, has often spent time in Tennessee uh, with her friend. And one time she was talking about some uh, some people who had visited. And she'd said, well, those people, those ladies were very nice. And, and somebody in the room said, oh, honey, they are as mean as snakes. Uh, because, it, because, and I'm not suggesting that everybody in the South is mean as snakes, but there is a kind of niceness that is practiced in the South that is a that can be a layer, a patina over something very different, something darker and less pleasant. Um, and you know, um, there's so there's that. I actually think that people in the med- Midwest are genuinely nice. I mean, I'm not too you know. Not to a person. Obviously, we're talking general generalities. We're talking about trends. I actually think mid- Midwestern niceness has a reality to it. Now, it's a re- it's its own kind of reality. And I'll give you a quick example before I take Cheryl's call. But I would love to have you ca- call in and talk about whether you think people in Connecticut are nice. I mean, I think we know the <laughs> I think we know the reflexive answer to that question. No, we are not nice. Um, but maybe there's some <laughs> other way of considering it. But but Midwestern people, they are nice. I mean, they really are nice, and they will do things for you. And they, I mean, if you go shopping in Chicago, I mean, I've had 
I've known people that this has happened to, like when shopping somewhere in Chicago, couldn't find the thing they were looking in at the store that they were at, had the person in the store call another store to see if that thing was there, and then had the other store agree to stay open a few extra minutes so that the per- the customer would have a chance to walk over to where it was. That is not happening. It's not happening here in Connecticut. Uh, and according to Oprah and Gail, it's not happening in Paris either. Remember that store that wouldn't stay open for them or whatever? Uh, anyway, I'm just interested to know. But I think underneath this, so this is the point I was going to make. I'll do it real fast because I want to get to Cheryl and Bob. Not existential crisis, Bob. He is not calling. But um, I think in Iowa you see an interesting thing, which is that like I, there's a uh, podcast called The Run-Up. It's a New York Times podcast. It's hosted by this terrific reporter named Ested Herndon. And, you know, he's been spending a lot of time out in Iowa. Uh, and, you know, people really talk to him, even though they know for, he's from the New York Times. These are Republicans in Iowa. They think the New York Times is essentially an arm of Satan. But they're just really nice with him and they answer his questions and because they would do that. They might harbor some pretty, you know, deeply buried, resentful or suspicious thoughts, but they would be nice. And, and that's because they value niceness, not because they're being phony. Anyway, if anybody has any thoughts about niceness, eh, I'd be happy to have you share them. But we have a limited amount of time left, and here's uh, Cheryl from Plantsville. Hi, Cheryl. You have the floor. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I'm calling about, well, maybe one or two things. Of course, uh, this being the 55th year of Roe versus Wave, at 77 years old, I understand that we went through hell before that came about. Second part is 14th Amendment. Who gets to determine how Trump is on the ballot in Connecticut after uh, the 14th Amendment said he's ineligible because of the insurrection that he participated in? Right. So, I mean, this is a long conversation. Uh, I, I think what what probably has to happen is that this well, it definitely has to happen. The Supreme Court is going to have to interpret this amendment. This amendment really hasn't been invoked since the Civil War. It, it was passed in order to keep people like Jefferson Davis from running for public office, maybe running for president. The the question is because of the way amendments are, you know, they they are non-specific, and there are different ways to think about uh, the Fourth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three, which is what we're talking about. The question is. How do we decide who participated in an insurrection? You know, is it a legally reached determination or is it just kind of a prima facie determination? I think that's the thing that you'll see the Supreme Court address. Given the composition of the Supreme Court and the preference of John Roberts not to have the Supreme Court be perceived as as highly politicized as it really is, he's going to look for some way. Some way to kind of come up with a decision that's maybe on on a detail of the law or a detail of interpretation that will probably allow Trump to keep running everywhere, um, but um, but not necessarily say that he didn't commit acts of insurrection. But it, all I'm going to say about that is ugh, ugh, with his giant flags and his double cab trunk trucks going round and round and his intimidation. Uh, I don't want to go through another presidency with that man. Well, yeah, and me neither. But, you know, it might happen. <laughs> it's getting increasingly possible that it might happen. I don't think anybody quite understands how we came to this particular moment. Uh, here is Bob from Oxford. Hi, Bob. Hey, how you doing, Colin? I'm just fine. How are you? I am well, thank you. 
So as a um, music fan, I know you got very little time. As a music fan and a musician, I'm distressed with the state of commercial music radio. And I was, you know, the corporate aspect of it. And so I'm just wondering, maybe it's a topic for a whole show, but um, your take from the public radio standpoint on the, you know, watered down music that we get as music fans on commercial radio. Let me meet your question with a question. Was there ever a time when you were satisfied with the state of commercial radio vis-a-vis music? Well, I'm old enough to remember the days where I could call into a station like WPLR and make a request and, you know, and it could be something out there like Frank Zappa and within 20 minutes or half an hour, they would play my Frank Zappa song. Uh, I I doubt that would happen today. It probably would not. Yeah, I mean, so there was a period of time, I mean... There was something called AOR, right? You and I are maybe somewhere in the same demographic. AOR was stood for album-oriented rock. That was the kind of station that you could call into. It really became popular late 60s, early 70s. And yeah, not only could you call in and make a request, but you know these stations would genu- genuinely surprise you with something. You'd hear something that I remember hearing "Who Knows the Wind" by Circus Maximus, which was I think Jerry Jeff Walker and some other people, and just okay, being. Yeah, that- je- know that stuff. Check it out. But it's really, it'll knock you out. But so that's the thing that for the most part can't happen anymore on commercial radio, which is you you won't be surprised. I I think, you know, they're just not going to do that. I mean, yeah, if you haven't heard the latest Shawn Mendes song, (laughs) then you'll be surprised the first time they play it. And then you'll be less surprised the next 78 times they play it. But um, I think that's the system has been broke. That system has been broken for a really long time. And, And the only thing that it's really been able to do is get into a much more kind of micro curation mode, um, you know, where, okay, so for example, I used to work in commercial radio and I worked on a site where there were four stations. There was our station, which was a talk station. And then there was basically a top 40 station. I don't know what they called it, but it was TICFM. That's a, some kind of top 40 station or something like that. I'm sure they have a nicer sounding name for it now. There was 93.7, which was, you know, one of the really original. It became one of the original hip hop stations in America to really embrace hip hop and and – you know, we had, you know, hip hop artists would be walking into the building all the time because there weren't that many places that they could go for interviews and stuff like that. And so that was sort of micro curation. I mean, hip hop hadn't quite come to dominate the way that it does now. And then the other one was 100.5 WRCH, which is an easy listening station. And one of my jobs was to go over there and, you know, put a mirror under the nose of the host, make sure they were still breathing. Um, but I think the system's been broken for a long time. I have to go. But the one thing that I would say is we now have a constellation. I mean, the streaming verse, I discover music almost every day. I use Tidal, but, you know, you might use Spotify. Whatever you use, you have an opportunity to, to discover or have music steered at you algorithmically every day. And I think for the most part, that's a good thing. All right, we have to stop. No more time. No more time. Got to go. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with new shows.